morning, saints. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. This morning will be our last morning in the book of Acts this year. Uh, Lord willing, we will pick it up again in February. I promise we will finish it soon. I do promise. We're going to read the passage as we come to it because it's it's quite a lengthy passage that I would like us to focus on this morning. Um, But by way of introduction, let me say this. Uh, A.W. Tozer, if you know him, uh, famously said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he famously said that what a man thinks about God is the most important thing about him. And, and that is true. In a fundamental sense, the Bible makes the case that what a person thinks about God reveals that person's true state. The The reason our thoughts about God are so important is because they reveal what we think God is, and in turn, they also reveal what we think about how we are to relate to Him, which is an important point. How we relate to God is important, but that comes from what we think about Him. What you believe about God will show itself in what you think He requires of you, and in turns, that will show itself in how you live. There's a bit of a, there's a chain, there's a chain there. There's a, a house built on the foundation of belief on what God is. The problem is that people in general have the wrong idea about who God is at the base, and then that the whole house of interacting with Him falls because they have the foundation wrong. And they have their fallacious ideas about what he is, who he is, and then they act in wrong ways with regards to him. For example, if you believe that God has passions and emotions like humans do, you will inevitably believe that any interaction between you and God requires him to be in the right mood. Just like people, that, that just like you require with people, right? Certain people... You need to approach people in the right mood. If you're coming to ask for something, the person has to be in the right mood. Well, if you think God is like that, if you think that God has passions, God has emotions in that way, that's how you're going to think about him and that's, how, that's going to affect how you relate to him. If you believe also that God has brought you to earth to be happy, then inevitably you will also believe that everything that makes you unhappy comes from somewhere else. Right? Everything that's uncomfortable, anything that takes away your joy comes from somewhere else. Comes from the devil, comes from uh, other people and their bad energy. Uh, it comes from the Togoloshes. It comes from all kinds of places. It cannot come from God. Now, God can never want me to be unhappy or uncomfortable. If you believe that God is a gentleman and will not force himself on any situation, then you inevitably will believe that your faith is the key to inviting him to come and work in your life. You will believe, you will think much about your faith, that you need to be in the right state of belief 
And without this right state of belief, God cannot work in your life. Children, listen to me, children, especially you teenagers. If you believe that God is limited, like your parents are limited, then you will be tempted to lie and deceive because you think God can't see unless he's in the room. If you can't see God, you think that he's not there, and so you will start lying and you start telling your parents and other people untruths, and you'll start thinking that there's a private world where you can exist that God does not see because you are thinking that God is limited like your parents are limited, but he isn't. See, friends, fallacies about God abound. Incorrect thinking about who God is abounds, and all of these fallacies must be corrected by the Word of God. Who God is, what God is, how He acts, what His aim is, all of these are important questions that everyone must be clear on. In the text in front of us, the Apostle Paul comes to Athens and he finds a people who have certain views about God and he debunks their views about God and he tells them the truth. Now, let me remind you where we are. We are in chapter 17, uh, the chapter which I call the knowledge chapter of Acts because in this part here, in this section of the section missionary journey, Luke focuses on how truth is received in different areas. We saw last time how he contrasted how truth was received between Thessalonica and Berea, and now he's coming and he's showing us how truth is received, now truth and what kind of truth that Paul brings uh, to, here, to the people of Athens. Uh, look with me in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's waiting for Timothy and Silas, whom he left in Berea, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city of Athens was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the word of God. Athens, of course, is a powerhouse city where, Luke finds, where uh, Paul finds himself here. Not only is it a powerhouse city in the sense that it's the capital city of Greece, but it's also a powerhouse city because it is the birthplace of Greek philosophy which at that time had shaped Western civilization by about half a millennia at that time. At the time that Paul is here, Athens has lost a little bit of its influence in the world. It's not the same as when Socrates and Plato were around teaching in Athens, uh, but it still remained a place of much discussion and much, and much philosoph philosophizing. 
Athens really was the, the ancient equivalent of TED Talks, you know, where people go and, and talk about new ideas, or, or you know, you remember those, those chappies, are you too young for that, some of you? Uh, but, but the OGs will know what I'm talking about, those did you knows, those did you knows, those chappies where you hear new information. This is, this is what Athens was, it's a place where people discuss, uh, particularly at the Agora, at the marketplace. So while Paul is here uh, waiting, he goes to the synagogue and, pre- and, and, and preaches there, reasons there, and then he goes and he reasons at the marketplace, at the Agora. And look at the reason that Luke gives us for this extended uh, time reasoning and discussing uh, in the marketplace. Look at what Luke says. Luke says he did all of this because he was provoked in his spirit because he saw that the city was full of idols. The place was littered with much idolatry and little gods everywhere. And so Paul goes, he can't stand it, he feels it, he's, he's feeling vexed in his spirit as a man of God, as a preacher of the gospel of God, and he goes and he reasons with them. Now, this place that he, he, he leaves the, the, the synagogue for and goes to spend most of his time in is called the Agora, the marketplace. And this marketplace that he goes to is not like Checkers or any you know, current supermarket that you and I understand. It was certainly a place where there was much trade happening, but it was also a place of discussion as well as commerce. Uh, At the Agora, you met your friends, you spoke to people, you discussed all the latest ideas, you discussed international politics, and you discussed the the latest ideas. Uh, From Some commentators really liken it today to a huge coffee house where people come and discuss and have uh, and, and, and look at new ideas. Now, I want you to notice what Paul does when he gets to the marketplace. The, look at the, the main thing that he does when he gets there. The Bible says that he reasons with them. Did you see that there uh, in verse uh, 17? Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile fellowshippers, and then he reasoned in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. He would spend his Saturdays going to the synagogue, but every day you would find him at the synagogue, at the marketplace, at the Agora, reasoning with the Gentiles. The word that's used here for reasoning is the word dialogomai, a word which we get the word in English, dialogue, discussion. Paul's ministry so far has been dominated by the word caruso, proclamation, preaching. But from here in the second missionary journey and even much later throughout the, the rest of the book of Acts, what we'll, the word that we'll find more that characterizes Paul's ministry is not really the word preaching, it's now going to be the word dialogomai, the word discussion, the word conversing, reasoning with people. And here's the thing that I want you to notice. Paul responds to his own annoyance with the idolatry of the place, not by shouting hellfire on everyone, but what is his strategy? To reason, to talk, to interact, to show, to meet the people where they're at and talk to them about the folly of what they're following and telling them about the truth of God's word. This shift in the word from 
from the word charizo to the word dialogomai, if you're reading this entire passage, the book of Acts in Greek, you'll see the shift is quite stark. I want you to think, isn't that quite something? When you are annoyed with the sinfulness of people, what are you tempted to do? When you are annoyed with the sinfulness of people, what's the first thing that you want to do? Shout. No? Everybody's just looking at me blank. I mean, don't, aren't you tempted to shout? Aren't you tempted to rise up? No, you guys are holy, eh? No? No? I mean, just everybody's looking at me like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you're tempted to fight when you're annoyed and you feel justified because these people are being sinful. You are tempted to sin, aren't you? You're tempted to shout, to, to, to rain down and show, to, to, to bring out the worst version of you. Parents, when your children are squabbling, what, are you, what, is your, what rises up within you to try and break this up? Are you the most calm version of yourself? No, children, my beloved children, this is not. Paul instead, as a picture of self-control, realizes that these people are blind and they must be reasoned with and told the gospel. Yes, he is indeed greatly annoyed by their worship of idols, but he is not so annoyed that he doesn't sit with them and discuss the truth in a well-reasoned, considerate manner. Friends, we have much to learn from this. This is our first lesson here. We have much to learn from Paul's example. I think Christians sometimes believe that we ought to show our difference with the world by badgering the world. We seem to believe that the way that we, we show our annoyance with sin is by clamoring, by, get, by getting louder and louder with regards to the sin. Or said, or put, or we can put this in a different way. There is a feeling that if you don't shout and be loud at unbelievers and their sin, you are condoning it. That if you don't shout, if you're not the loudest just constantly, you see an unbeliever in their sin, you have to shout about it. There's a feeling that you are condoning it. But here, the Pauline way is exemplary. We ought indeed to be pricked and annoyed in our hearts at the sin, such as the sin of idolatry. But then we must be considered and reason well with the people, knowing that they are blinded by the God of this age. Of course, doesn't James say to us, your anger will not produce the righteousness of God. You're huffing and puffing. You're sweating. I can't believe they're like that. I just can't. What's that going to produce except just you turning pink in the face? Or if you're black, turning blacker. <laughs> What's that going to produce? Just, just veins. It's just veins. That's it. Nothing else. For my white brothers and sisters, we see the pinkness, but the rest of us, just the veins, just... Nothing. It's not going to produce anything. That's what James says. We ought to reason with people. Control yourself. Think, how do I reason with you? Because you're blinded by the God of this age. How do I reason with you to show you that you are wrong, that this is the right way to go forward in the way of God? Well, so Paul reasons with them. So how do they react to Paul's reasoning? Look at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, 
He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The two groups here that are interacting with him, so you see these two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics, these two groups are, are two philosophical schools whom he was conversing and dealing with daily, talking to them, and in way, clearly in one sense, uh, uh, attacking some of their wrong beliefs in a reasoned and disgusting manner. Now, who are these two groups? The Epicureans were materialists. Uh, they believed that everything came from atoms or particles of matter. For the Epicureans, there was no life beyond this life. For the Epicureans, the, the gods, if they exist, they didn't deny the existence of God, but if the gods existed, they don't really have much to do with us here on earth. Uh, the, the Epicureans had what is called the tetrapharmakos, or the, the four-part cure, which was which is a Philomus of Gadara's basic guideline as to how to live the happiest possible life based on the first four of the doctrines of Epicureanism. Here's this little, it's a little poem that, that synthesizes Epicurean uh, philosophy and how to live. It says this, Don't fear God, don't worry about death, what is good is easy to get, and what is terrible is easy to endure. Did you get that? Don't fear God. Don't worry about death. What is good is easy to get, and what is terrible is easy to endure. For the Epicureans, pleasure is the ultimate good. Pleasure, the eradication of anything that opposes pleasure, that's the ultimate good. They were not preachers of excess, but they were preachers of pleasure and enjoyment of pleasure. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed much in the gods, and they believed in many gods. They are probably the ones who are responsible for all these gods that, that Paul is seeing in Athens. And they believed that the gods were very much involved with humanity. They believed that there was a spark of divinity in everything, the spark which they called the Logos, which is the word that the Apostle John takes and, and, and changes and calls the Lord Jesus. He calls him the Logos. And because of this, they believed in a high ethic. Uh, the foundation of Stoic ethics is that good lies in the state of the soul itself, in wisdom and in self-control. And here's, the, here's their aim in life. Based on their belief, here's their aim in life. One must therefore strive to be free of all passions. A person must strive. The life is about getting rid of all of your passions, particularly fear and distress. That seem to be anxiety. Those, those kinds of fears, for them, this is the main thing about life. Be free from all passions. Become a stoic. You've heard the phrase. Become just a robotic and control yourself and you'll find all the good that is in yourself if you're able just to exercise all kinds of control and pursuit of wisdom. Now, if you can just imagine, these two groups were, were philosophical opponents. These two groups did not like each other. They were like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They, they, were, they were at each other's throats all the time, arguing against each other. They, dis they disagreed with each other fundamentally on how a person ought to live. One group said, 
eat, drink, and be merry. And the other group said, prize self-control over everything. And Paul comes, and they call him, both of them, they call him a babbler. Because he is preaching Christ and the Anastasis, the, the resurrection. They heard him preach Christ and the Anastasis, Christ and Anastasis, and they think that these are two gods. But really, Paul is preaching Christ and the resurrection, and the resurrection is not another god, but the resurrection is a hope that Paul is using to dash all of their philosophical systems. Paul is preaching about a Jesus who gives hope of a life to come. In the midst of a people who are focused entirely on what's the best way to live here, Paul comes and says, let me tell you about the resurrected Jesus who will resurrect all who believe in him in the day of judgment. And to their ears, both the Epicureans and the Stoics, this sounds like nonsense. Sounds like babbling. The word babbler there that they call him is literally a word that means seed spread. It's just somebody who just keeps saying a whole bunch of things, hoping that one of those things will catch. Now, if you think about the Stoics and the Epicureans, you would think, if you just think about how we've described them, you would quickly see that they certainly have descendants even today, don't they? There's certainly that way of thinking, the Stoic way of thinking, the Epicurean way of thinking, certainly has survived in many forms even today. There are those in society today who say, go ahead, have fun, especially in your youth, have fun, enjoy yourself, don't take things so seriously. Go, enjoy yourself, do things here and there, uh, have fun, weekends are for fun. Uh, Friday, it's, it's the beginning of fun, and then you go back to work, but then Friday comes again. Really, life is about enjoyment. Don't don't fear God. Don't, don't worry about these people who are busy telling you about God and fearing all of that. Just, just do your thing. And then on the other side, there are those who love restrictions, aren't they? There are those who, who really major on don't do this, don't do that, don't touch, don't touch this, don't taste that. I recently overheard a religious person one time uh, tell someone else, literally this person was telling somebody else, you really shouldn't have a TV in your house. A TV is bringing all kinds of evil, and you're bringing it in, there, in its waves into your house. You really shouldn't have a TV. And while I was overhearing this, I had to control myself to not butt myself in the conversation and ask this person what the time is so that they can take out their iPhone and tell me what the time is. Do you get it? Selective. You, you, you're badgering the TV, but you have an iPhone. You have computers. It's, whatever is going to come in by TV is already in your house. Why are you still badgering the TV? Okay. There's people who just... And it's, of course, it was a popular doctrine at one point, right? TV is the big evil. It was a popular doctrine at one point, and some people are still holding on to that. There's this, there's this feeling of just, we need to tell people, don't do this, don't do that. The key is in all the rules. And what is Paul's answer to both of these groups? What is Paul's answer? What, the, what is the thing that Paul comes and talks about to these groups who are both obsessed about how to live here and they both have fundamentally different philosophies of how to live here? What is his message? The resurrection. 
the resurrection. Paul's focus is to remind them of the life to come. Of course, we've seen this already in this chapter. Paul arrived in Thessalonica and in Perea preaching a resurrected Messiah. The resurrection for Paul is a serious, considered, and foundational doctrine that should control how a person lives. When you're thinking about how to live, think about the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. He says, if the resurrection of Christ did not happen, then we might as well join the Epicureans and eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's no point in anything if Jesus did not get raised from the dead, and we also don't have a hope of being raised from the dead. But because the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of those who follow him is a real reality, that shuts all of those conversations completely down. Let me put it to you in a different way. The answer to both licentiousness and legalism is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We deal with sin because Jesus resurrected. We fight self-righteousness, on the other hand, because Jesus resurrected. We do not put a whole thing on rules and man-made rules and, and religiosities because Christ resurrected. And in the same way, we don't give in to sin and how our body wants to act because Christ resurrected. There is a hope of the resurrection. There is an incessant focus on how we ought to live now when the Bible says we ought to be controlled by the fact that Christ rose again from the dead and Christ is going to raise us from the dead. You forget the resurrection. You lose sight of the resurrection of Christ. You lose sight of the fact that there is a future resurrection, particularly of those who love God, who will live with Him forever in joy and tranquility. You forget that. You will start living by all kinds of man-made rules. Don't taste, don't touch, or do whatever you want. Children, particularly you teenagers in the church, I want you to think about this. Because you are raised in a Christian home, children, because you are raised in a Christian home, you are going to be tempted when you leave home to go into either one of these two philosophical schools. When you leave home, you could either grow up, leave home, and become a stoic, a person who goes around becoming legalistic and telling people what to touch, what not to taste, what to do, how to live, living with specific rules, or you are going to rejoice at the freedom that you now have and you become an Epicurean and live however you want. But children, the reason that you are to live for the Lord Jesus Christ is not because of your parents. The reason you are to live for the Lord Jesus Christ is because He has been resurrected. The controlling rule over your mind and heart should not be your parents and what they see. The controlling rule over your minds and hearts, children, listen to me, should be the fact that Jesus lives after He died. And it means that if he lives after he died, everything that he said is true. When he called himself the king of the world, he's true. 
When he, called, when he said, if you believe in me, I will give you life, it's true. Why? Because he lives. The resurrection should be the thing, the controlling thing in your minds, not the eyes of your parents, not the fear of being kicked out, but the fact that you have, there is a Lord Jesus Christ who lives after he died. Well, what happens now after they, 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 they've called him a babbler, they now invite Paul to come and speak to them at the Areopagus. This word Areopagus means the hill of Ares. Uh, it's where they sat and discussed new ideas, but it was also a place that was a, a court um, in, in Athens. It doesn't appear that Paul is being asked to come here to be flogged or to be... It's not like Paul is coming to give a, a court case, to answer in a court case, but it seems that they called him to this uh, hill of Ares, this Areopagus, to come and give an, an explanation of what it is that he believes. Look at verse 19. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we learn what is this new teaching being proclaimed by you? For you are bringing some astonishing things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who stayed there used to spend their time in nothing else than telling something or listening to something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of even your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead well paul goes to the areopagus and he he gives an account of his teachings to them by really giving this powerful, this really wonderful sermon that I was tempted to look at this particular sermon in, over many sermons, you know, because there's so many things that Paul says here that are solid for us to think about. But then as I was thinking about, can I just chop this up into different sermons, uh, Percy's word of how long will it take 
while we're in Acts, how many years must pass while we're in the book of Acts rang in my head, and so I didn't do that. But really, the, the sermon is a powerful sermon. It has a, thr- a powerful, solid thrust in what it, it explains. And so in, he begins his speech here, he begins his sermon by acknowledging their religiosity. And he, say, he says he will proclaim to them what they call unknown. Now what does he mean when he says that they are religious? He says, I, I see that in every way you are religious. Well, he means that they involve themselves in much of what is considered religion at the time. And that, inclu- that includes having statutes to gods, um, having statutes to gods everywhere, and probably having temples, doing all the kinds of things that religious people do at the time. So he's saying, I can see that you are, irre- you are religious in, in every way. You even have a statue to an unknown god. This apparently was a common practice in Greece at the time. Roads and marketplaces across Greece would have inscription to the different gods of the areas and then to unknown gods. And then when the Greeks would hear and learn about another god, they would adopt that god and say, we'll put the name of that god and scratch the unknown god, put the name of that god, and then put another one to an unknown god in case they want to, to, to take in another god later on. This was, for them, of course, was a, this was very religious. They wanted to ensure, because they believed in multiple gods, they wanted to ensure that they honored every god in existence, of course, to their own material benefit. And Paul here is careful in this sermon to show a distinction between their current system of worship and what is true. Paul does not take one of their gods and try to change his name, but he uses an opportunity afforded by this unknown God inscription to proclaim to them that their entire system of idolatry is false and futile. The first point here is that the God of the universe is quite unlike anything that man can imagine. You guys have all these gods that you have imagined, but the God of the true God, the God who made the universe, is unlike anything that you can imagine. It is a masterstroke by Paul to use the phrase that, they, that, that he saw there, the unknown God, because while they think they are being religious and, sh- and ensuring that they've prayed to every God, even the gods that they don't know, he is using the phrase to mean that they actually do not know the real and living God. He says, I see that you, this unknown God, well, this that you don't know, I proclaim to you. You actually don't know him. While you are very religious, while you, you, you are involved in much religion and all these idolatry, you actually are proving by all that you are doing, you are proving that you do not know the real God. You have an inscription to an unknown God, and you are actually right. You do not know him. And let me proclaim this God to you, the real God. Let me proclaim him to you. If you truly knew him, you would not be acting this way. You would not be having all these idols if you truly knew who he is and what he is like. Friends, if I were to ask you, what is the one thing that people in the world lack knowledge of? What would you say? What is the one thing that people really do not know? Is it maths, science, economics, morality? The correct answer is God. 
People do not know God. Paul tells us this in Romans 3. People do not know God. Yes, they have glimpses of him. They see that he, is, he has invisible attributes, but they do not know him. Then one of you will say to me, but hold on, most of the world is religious. So there must be some knowledge of God. But I'll say to you, being religious does not equate to knowing God. Being religious, involving yourself in much religious stuff, does not equate to knowing God. If you said that in a, in a test, you have failed. That's what these people are doing. And that's what Paul is calling them out on. That you are very religious. But a lot of your religion is superstition and not based on reality. And this is an important point. There is no salvation through religious activity. There is no salvation, that is, to know God and be known by God through much participation in religion. Praying has no power to save you. Did you know that? Just the act of prayer has no power to save you. Otherwise, we'd just say, pray five times a day and you're fine. The act of praying has no power to save you. Going to church has no power to save you. Visiting church at Christmas and at Easter does nothing for your soul. Dancing to worship music None of these things guarantee salvation. Children, coming to church with your parents does not give you salvation by participation. You with me? The resurrected Jesus is the only one who saves. Knowing the resurrected Christ, that's the only way to be saved. Well, Paul goes on to make two very important points which are a direct attack on their religious system. He makes these two points. Number one, God made everything and therefore does not need anything from man's hands. And number two, man is actually the one who needs God. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord in heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. One of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith that has many implications to how we relate to God is the doctrine of God's aseity. Doctrine of God's aseity. Deficiency in this doctrine will result in deficiency in your understanding of what exactly that God requires of you. The scripture brings this doctrine to our faces multiple times, and whenever the, spring, the scripture brings this doctrine to our faces, it is trying to tell us exactly what it is that is involved in our relationship to God. God's aseity refers to, be, to God being eternally and completely of himself meaning that he is completely self-originating. He started with himself, if you can even say that. He didn't start anywhere. But if you're going to use the word originate or start, he began with himself, and he depends to continue on himself. He needs nothing external outside of him to keep him going. There is nothing that something that is outside is going to add to him to help him in what he is doing. When we're talking about God's aseity, 
we are referring to the way that God has existed from eternity past completely independent of anything else, completely of himself, and therefore satisfied and delighted and completely happy in himself. The story is told of a child in Sunday school who asked the Sunday school teacher, Teacher, why did God create Adam and Eve? For what purpose did God create the world and create Adam and Eve? And famously, the Sunday teacher answers and says, God created Adam and Eve because he was lonely. Friends, this is heresy of the highest order. Are you with me? God was not lonely. That's, that's not why you're here. Now, before you judge that Sunday school teacher harshly, you, you have to think a little bit. You understand why the Sunday school teacher would say that. Human beings generally create out of necessity, right? Human beings create out of necessity. You've heard the phrase that necessity is the mother of invention. All the advances of creativity that we've had usually come because we are in need of something, so we think of something to come and meet that need. And then, naturally, we think that perhaps it's the same thing with God. God would not have created us if he didn't need us for something. God would have not have created all the cosmos and, and everything that exists if it did not add any kind of benefit to him. But that's wrong. That is not right. God did not create us so that we could add something to him. In fact, quite the contrary. Now, if you hear this phrase that God does not need you, that he, he's not served by your hands, there's nothing that you can do to add to him, does that leave you feeling insignificant? In one sense, you should feel insignificant because no matter how awesome you are, no matter how high your self-esteem is, you are irrelevant to God's existence and God's needs. God needs nothing from you, not your money, not your talents, not your tears, not your worship, not your deep emotional songs, nor your time. There is nothing that you can give him that he needs for anything. But does the story end there, that we're just here and he, and he doesn't need us, so that's the end of the story? No, the story does not end there. Paul continues his point. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. For what purpose? That they should seek God and perhaps feel the way toward him and find him. And yet he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And as even as some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. It's time to repent from thinking like that. For what purpose did God create us? What is the purpose that you are here? If you are thinking about your life's aim, your life's goal, what's the thing that you are here for, what your forefathers were here for, all the way going back to Adam, what is the purpose of every human being? It is to seek God and find Him. That is our purpose. It is to seek God and find Him. A rich man was determined to give his mother a birthday present that would outshine all other birthday presents. 
So he read of a bird that had a vocabulary, a parrot, that had a vocabulary of 4,000 words, which that could speak in numerous languages and sing three operatic arias. I have no idea what that is, but apparently that's impressive. He immediately went to find this impressive bird, paid $50,000, and had the bird delivered to his mother. The next day, he phoned to see if she, had received the if she had received the bird, and he asked his mother, Mom, what did you think of the bird? And Mom replied, mm, it was delicious. <laughs> purpose, intended purpose, is important. You are not here to be eaten, in one sense. <laughs> You are not here to do all these things, these pursuits. A lot of these things are good, but they're not the ultimate goal for why you are here, why your forefathers were here. The real reason you are here is to find God. And unfortunately, the sad thing is that Paul tells us in Romans 3, he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, no one seeks for God. They don't. That's what they're here for, but they don't look for him. They look for this and they look for that and they search for that. They, 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 they focus on that thing and focus on that thing and God is nothing but an afterthought. But this is why you're here. While a person can live not knowing God, that person will never find peace until he finds God. Because your life is meant to be a search that ends at God. No matter where you come from, if you are a daughter or son of Adam, you are designed to seek him. And unless you seek and find him, truly him, not these fake copies that are made by people's hands, but actually him, the, the unknown God, the God that the world does not know, the one who made everything. If you find him, you will find the purpose of your existence. Paul here even quotes two statements from the Greeks themselves. The, the Greeks themselves had seen this truth. That in him we move and have our being. And they also, and another poet said, we are indeed his offspring. They saw this truth that we, we, we exist in him. And they saw this truth that we, are, that we are connected, we're close to him, we're supposed to be near him. Life is really about him. They saw this truth, but they saw it like, you know, remember when the Lord Jesus healed the blind man first and the man said, I see men as trees. It's not seeing clearly. They saw it, but they're not seeing it clearly because they continued to make idols. And Paul tells us why they continue to make idols in Romans chapter 1. They made idols because they reject his morality. They reject his judgment. And the grand answer then to this search is, how do we find God? What's the grand? This is, how do we find God? We find God, look at what Paul says, by abandoning all the ignorant ways of our forefathers and trusting in the man that God has given to judge the world, the man that he has assured us is indeed the man to judge the world because he has raised him from the dead. How do you find God? Number one, get rid of all the old ignorant ways. Get rid of them. Don't try to redeem the old ignorant ways. They're old and they're ignorant. They're old, they're not true. The answer is found in the man that God raised from the dead. That's how you find God. And so this is for you. If you're here this morning, your life is a search, 
and you have not found the man that God has raised from the dead, I appeal to you, repent of the, of the old ways. Repent of the Epicurean way of doing whatever you desire. Repent of the Stoic way of living by rules and hoping that these rules are going to make you happy or keep you safe. Repent of all of that and find God in the man that he has raised from the dead. And that man has a name. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In Jesus Christ, we live and move and have our being. In Jesus Christ, we find redemption and forgiveness of sin. In Jesus Christ, we find the hostility that's between us and God broken down entirely. And in his body, he bore our sin and then rose on the third day without any mark of sin. Except the two witnesses that prove in his hand, the, the two, his two pierced arms that prove and remind us for all eternity that he has taken care of our sin problem forever. Repent and come to this man while it is called today. And if you leave here this morning and you continue in the old ways, you will continue in a lifeless search. Don't do that. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of you who have found Christ, once you've found him, wait for him. Seek him. Love him. You have found the treasure. Keep nurturing your love for him. You are like that man who has found the treasure. Once you have found the treasure, don't now forget about the treasure and leave it in your house and go elsewhere to be dissatisfied. Nurture your love for the treasure because you have found the true one, the real one, the one who is the song of all the ages, Christ himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you are the answer to our eternal search, our long search, our lifelong search. You have made a way for us to find God by your death and resurrection. And we pray, Lord, that in your grace and mercy, you would work in us to nurture our love for you that this world and its fleeting pleasures might not blind us to the true treasure that we have found, that we might constantly love you, remember your resurrection, live in light of your resurrection and ours. We pray for your grace, and even now as we come to the table, we ask that you would encourage us and strengthen us again this week to live in light of the truth of your death and resurrection for us. In your name we pray. Amen.